After last Sunday, my phone and email and calls and even personal interactions were just blowing up about, gosh, 95% plus, over-the-top positive, just, you know, their gratitude and just freedom and creating good conversations with the family and just hearing things that, that were so refreshing to so many people and really of all generations. Every generation was pouring out the sense that, yes, this is the mission of Christ. This is what the church of Christ should look like. Let's make some adjustments. Let's get in line with what we believe is the heart of Jesus Christ. So there's a great pouring out from every generation. But the thing that I love, honestly, the most I love every generation is the young generation is, is absolutely thriving with this expression of Christianity, and I mean thriving, this open-door, grace-based expression of Christianity, this, this sense that we're not in camps, we're not in tribal camps, we're not in racial camps, we're not in political camps, right? We're not in religious camps. We're a family of faith, all looking to Jesus. I love what Evan said earlier, is looking at everything through the lens of, of Jesus, not through the lens of our camp and protecting myself and protecting my opinions and moving forward what I would like to see. No, but laying down our lives the way Jesus laid down his life and live for the benefit of others and live for the benefit of our entire culture, to live for the benefit of our community, to live for the benefit of the world. I mean, there's just so many wonderful things that the young generation in particular are saying, yes, let's do that. Now, in all honesty, I got about a half a dozen comments that says, hey, you know, maybe the tone was a little much, and that may be true. I mean, I might be guilty of that here and there. That's not the intent to elevate the tone. In fact, the intent is always to kind of moderate the tone. We've got to get things more peaceful, but I want to learn and grow and hear from some people. Uh, very often, I, I, had, I hear that from people who are more conflict avoidance. You know, just it's good. let it go away, let it go away, right? Don't say too much. I did get a few concerned emails from people who just said, you know, I'm not with you. I'm not with this. And that's okay. Even those ended up being very gracious, even mutually affirming interactions uh, with, with people that we've walked with and are journeying with. And some are just simply saying that, that, that mission I'm not, not real down with. And that's okay, right? We disagree, and we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ. There is something that's said when, whenever there is a sharing of an opinion, uh, particularly in the church context, there's always those who say, you know what, why not just seek unity? And you know what they mean by that? Why not just agree with me? <laughs> I mean, everybody who is saying, hey, why don't you just seek unity? What they're saying actually is, I just need you to agree with me. I need my opinions spoken through your face. <laughs> but that's not the real world. I mean, I believe the word of God, particularly the cause of Christ, is meant to be in action, in action in our lives, in action in our families, in action in our communities, in action in our nation. So these principles are not just fun religious things that we go to religious services and do religious things that don't mean anything, right? It, these are principles from Jesus and a mission from Jesus of mercy, justice, and love that is to be put to work in daily life because that's what's going to get things on the comeback trail, right? Is that love of Christ and that matters and needs to be applied in the real world, right? So unity doesn't mean we all agree. There's a deeper kind of unity, a biblical unity that we can practice. And it means that we treat each other well even when we disagree. To put it like this, unity doesn't mean agreement. Agreement's boring. If you're in a community where everybody agrees in the exact same things, particularly church, there's nothing more boring than a church community where everybody agrees. Uh-huh, pastor, tell me what to believe. Uh-huh, pastor, tell me what to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Boring. Unity doesn't mean agreement. 
True biblical unity happens when we disagree and still treat each other as family. And that's the entire history of the church. The church never fully agrees on everything. Now, we can go to our church corner where everybody agrees on everything. I don't want to be a part of that. Some people do. Some people don't. I don't. True unity happens when we disagree. Here's what happens in in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. Here's a church that was radically dividing over religious convictions, biblical interpretation, culture, and race. I mean, they were on fire. And the founder of that church says, always be humble and gentle. In your disagreement, be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. So the founder of the church, the Apostle Paul, was saying, hey, listen, you're going to offend each other. You're going to have faults. You're going to have failures in it all. Be kind, be humble, be gentle. Make every effort to keep yourself united in spirit. In your disagreements, be united in spirit, binding yourself together with peace. Let me put it to you this way. Uh, A happy, united family doesn't all agree on everything, right? If there's a family that all agrees on everything, that's like a horror show, (laughs) right? A real healthy family has disagreements. Everybody feels free to say, you know what, I don't quite agree. And then unity shows up. We treat each other well. We treat each other kindly. If we make a mistake, we make apologies, right? That's a healthy, united family. Not that everybody agrees, but that you know how to treat each other when you disagree. The church should be the same way, right? I'm going to show you a couple of paintings, right? See how you like these paintings. Here's a very famous painting by Barnett Newman. There it is, an actual picture of a painting, very famous. That painting sold for $43 million dollars. It is a field of blue. <laughs> Forty-three million dollars. I'm not joking. Now there's a market for that. There's a market for a field of blue. It's all the same. There's a market for that. There's a market for going to a church where everybody's all the same and believes the same things, and you're patting each other on the back all day and saying, "Well, they're the enemy all day." I mean, there's a market for that. Again, I find that quite boring. I would not. I would only spend about forty-one million on that personally. Uh, Here's a painting that uh, is just my personal preference. I love uh, Impressionism. And so here's a work from Monet, The Cliff Walk at Poorville. And it's, I think it's beautiful. Different colors, different textures, different perspectives, all working together to make this beautiful thing. I just have this sense that that's what Jesus was thinking about when he was thinking about his church, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, men and women, bring them all, doors wide open, bring everybody, right? And bring your different color, bring your different texture, bring your different perspective, and together we are an image of Jesus Christ himself. Galatians 3.28, in the church, we don't treat each other, right, by ethnicity, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.28. It's beautiful. That's what the church should be. Our unity is not in agreement. Our unity is not in sameness. No fields of blue. Our unity is in the grand picture that we all create together with our differences, projecting the very person of Jesus. So who are we as a church? Our mission is that we are a diverse community of friends advancing the cause of Christ. A diverse community of friends advancing the cause of Christ. That's where the fun is. And, and that fun means that we're going to disagree. That fun is that we're going to be a learning community. That fun means that we're not going to see eye to eye on some things, even some very important things. That fun means we're going to be from all different cultural backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, political backgrounds, and we're going to be all thrown into this canvas, and we're going to make something beautiful out of it. That's the beauty of a diverse church. 
And I believe that diversity is really where the beauty comes from. That's really where unity is found. That's really where love is found. Jesus says it is no big deal to love people like you. And the Jews, he was talking to the Jews at the time who just loved each other. They admired each other all day long. They all believed the same thing, looked the same way. Jesus says, big deal. Loving someone most unlike you is real love. And the church ought to be practicing that, right? Diverse community of friends advancing the cause of Christ. That's what's going to make the comeback story here, right? Our nation needs a comeback. Our community needs a comeback. The Christian church needs a comeback. Families need a comeback. Sometimes individuals are hurting right now. They need a comeback. The comeback is going to come when we learn to love each other the way Jesus loves us. So we're going to talk about Genesis 1 through 11, the origin stories. And in these origin stories, you're going to see the story of love. You're going to see the story of comeback. You're going to see the story when, when people fall and when the world falls, God says, I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to empower you. You're going to get up and we're going to keep going. That's what these origin stories are all about. Genesis 1 through 11 is four origin stories. What's an origin story? Every culture has them. America has origin stories. Every culture has origin stories. Here's what they are. They're usually poems, parables, sagas, or epic tales informing a culture about how they came to be and what they value, particularly why they value what they value. And these origin stories often use religious, mystical, or mythological explanations. Those are origin stories. Origin stories are so critically important in defining a culture. Every distinct culture has origin stories, every one. I'll give you an example. Uh, the Norse culture, ancient Norse culture is very popular right now. I mean, there's all kinds of TV shows about the Norse culture and Vikings and all that stuff, and it's very intriguing um, in today's day and age. So they have remarkably sophisticated origin stories, right? Mythologies about all these gods. And so there was, you know, once uh, this darkness, nothing but darkness, and the first god was Ymir, who then has offspring. One of the offspring was Odin. And so in their story, <clears throat> Odin slays the first god, Ymir, and makes the world out of his corpse. So that's their origin story. That's their worldview. Odin, their supreme god, kills the first god, Ymir, and uses his corpse to make the earth. So he uses the hair of Ymir to make the farms, things like that. It's very sophisticated, very detailed. And it defines their culture. So Viking culture starts with their god murdering the first god and using the corpse for the benefit of the Vikings. So you see how their culture is built on their origin stories, right? Now, fortunately, they have new origin stories now, and they're not, you know, raiding and pillaging. That's, that's a good thing because they would rule the earth. They're tough people. America has our own origin stories. You might have heard these in your history classes, right? <clears throat> Crossing of the Delaware. You remember this image? It's a very powerful image. It's like the American image. You know, here is Washington in secret taking his warriors across the Delaware for a surprise attack against the Hessian force, forces, right? And th here's this painting that is the American painting. It's the general, the first president, and the flag waving in broad daylight to attack the Hessians. You think that's how it actually looked? <laughs> Not at all. They were in the secret of night. It was pitch black, and they were all uh, just huddled in the depths of their boat so nobody would see him. So George Washington was at like this. The flag was like this, right? Because you can't be seen, right? That's the reality. 
But what's the American sort of mythology? It's based on a, a true story, but you got to add some sizzle because we're Americans, right? We don't, we're not in boats. We're like, Ugh. and so the whole American culture, which is great. I mean, I am a flag waving American, right? Uh, hopefully kind, generous, gracious, but, but, you know, the origin story really sets in our heart who we are as a people. How about Valley Forge? We may not have heard of Valley Forge, a six-month winter stay of thousands, tens of thousands of American troops that were short on food. And, and all the imagery of Valley Forge has, you know, huddled, wounded, um, frostbitten soldiers under blankets of snow. And that says something about America. We are that courageous. We endured six months of that. Well, there was no snow. There was never snow. There was no frostbite, no amputations from frostbite. It was tough. You know, they had some sort shortages of food, and there was some disease that, that killed several hundred, probably up to, up to 1,700. So it was a big deal, and that was courageous. But it wasn't these masses under blankets of snow. But the American story, you know, has snow and frostbite, right? Which is great. Again, that's great, right? Just own it. Own it for what it is. Same thing with the Star Spangled Banner, right? This is 1814. Uh, Fort McHenry was under bombardment from the British forces, and it was just raining down, you know, rockets, bombs on this fort. Francis Scott Key was there trying to navigate some stuff between the British and the Americans, and, and he thought for sure the fort would be decimated in the morning, and when the, the cloud cover, you know, sort of burned away, he saw the tattered American flag and wrote the Star Spangled Banner, but it didn't look like a fireworks show, a beautiful all-American fireworks show. It was a bloody mess of a battle, right? But again, we have our origin stories. Why? Because we want to instill in each other the values of our culture. Nothing wrong with that. We just got to take it for what it is. Now, the Hebrews have their origin stories. The four in particular in the early pages of Genesis. Those are their origin stories. So the Hebrews up till now for the last 4,000 years have looked back to those origin stories and said, that's who we are. That's who we are. And every single one of them is a comeback story. Do you know why the Jews just keep coming back from the worst disasters you can possibly imagine? Do you know why they keep coming back after thousands of years of persecution and slaughter and Holocaust? Do you know why they keep coming back? They have four origin stories that say our God will bring us back from anything. You want to hear about the four origin stories? You've heard them before. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the Flood, Tower of Babel. Those are the four stories. They're all comeback stories. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve came back from pride. They failed because of pride. God brings them back from pride. Genesis 1.27, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. So God is saying, listen, I created you for this. You are, you are humankind. You're made in the image of God, which means you can think outside of yourself. You think beyond animalistic instincts. You can make choices between right and wrong and good and evil. I made you just like me. Now don't blow it. I'm making you just like me. You have a will. You can go this direction or that direction. In a half an hour, Adam and Eve went that direction, and they blew it. They did the only thing they weren't supposed to do, right? Again, it's an origin story, so you take it for what it is, right? They did the only thing they were told not to do. Don't eat from that tree. They ate from that tree. Why? Because this temptation. The tempter comes along. If you eat of that, you won't die. God knows your eyes will be opened. So as soon as you eat, you will be like God. Knowing good and evil, this is pride. I want to be like God. God made me in his image, but I'm kind of trapped in this garden, and I want more. I want more of me. I want more power. I want more knowledge. I want more. I'm going to do the very thing I'm told not to do. Whoop, here we go. Is all lost? No. 
God has a comeback story, a comeback from pride. Do we all struggle with pride individually? Yes. Do we struggle with pride societally? Yes. Every society does. The human nature is often driven by pride, right? Driven by pride. We want what we want when we want it. Anybody in our way, you're the enemy. I don't care if they're a husband or our kids or our wife. You're the enemy. I'm going to get what I want. If I have to manipulate, if I have to do something kind of wrong, if I have to hurt you, if I have to say something mean, I will do what I need to do to get my way. That's pride. It's the way it's always been. It's the way it's always been. Humankind chooses pride and destruction begins. Every terrible thing that has ever, hap- ever happened, individually, culturally, societally, nationally, globally, Every single thing probably can be traced back to the origin of pride, the most destructive thing. But God's a God of comeback, right? So even when Adam and Eve destroy themselves through pride, there's a comeback. Genesis 3.20, then the man Adam named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. Even after they blew it, God still says, you're still on mission. You're still going to be the mother of all who live. You're, you're going to have some consequences. You choose pride, there are terrible consequences. You're going to have to manage the rest of your life and terrible consequences that humankind is going to have to manage. As long as they are on this, this blue earth, there's going to be toil, there's going to be strife, but you're still going to be the mother of all who live. The Lord made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. God's providing, God's giving grace, God is forgiving. God is saying, you're now limping. We now have problems. There's consequences to bad choices, but your mission is still a go. Fill the earth, fill the earth. You're the mother of all. How about Cain and Abel? Not only is Adam and Eve a comeback story, but Cain and Abel is a comeback story. If you don't know the story, um, Abel gave God a true and pure sacrifice. Cain withheld for himself. Again, a little bit of pride in there for sure. And God says, uh, hey, Cain, you can do better. (laughs) Cain was not happy. He was jealous. There's pride, there's jealousy. So it's not only uh, do I want what I want when I want it, but I want what they have. That is pride that turns into violence, and that's exactly what happened. Genesis 4, 8, one day Cain suggested to his brother, hey, let's take a walk, bro. Let's go out to the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him, murder. Page 2 of the Bible. We have pride, and now we have murder. We have murder. When we don't have what we want, we often turn to violence. It's almost like the human instinct is violence. We want what we want. We don't get it. Oh, we want what they want. Then there's violence. And it's like that. I mean, that's just, watch the news. It's all about violence. There's violence here. This is violence here. This nation's violence here. This family had violence here. This person experienced violence here. That's what it's all about. This is what we do. It's what human nature is, is we want it. We want what you have. There will be violence. And I'm not just talking about murder or assault, as terrible as that, uh, that is and as pervasive as that still is. I'm talking about the violence of meanness, the violence of speaking poorly about someone, the violence of social media posts that will hurt somebody, the violence of, of, of abusive things that we say to people, Right? We just go to violent talk. We go to violent posturing. We go to threats. We go to assaults and even murder. It's just the way it always has been. And so when Cain and Abel still choose violence, God's not done. Humankind chooses violence and destruction reigns. That's the point of the second origin story, but there's a comeback. There's a comeback. Genesis 4, 8. 
God says to Abel, the murderer, you are now cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. There's always a consequence to our actions. But God wasn't done with Abel. I'm sorry, with Cain. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. East of Eden. God still gave him a second chance, and he became the father of a mighty people. There's a comeback. There's a comeback from pride, Adam and Eve. There's a comeback from violence, Cain and Abel. How about Noah and the flood? Noah and the flood. This is a comeback from corruption. As humankind spreads on the earth, particularly in the Near East, God is noticing what they're choosing to do with their lives and what they're choosing to do with their culture. And they are choosing corruption. They're choosing to satisfy their own desires through greed, through um, money, through sex. They are getting what they want. They're greedy. They're corrupt. Here's how it goes down, Genesis 6. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. They just want what they want for themselves, their own greed, their own desires, their own lusts. And I find it fascinating that when God says, I've had it with these people, I've had it with their corruption, I've had it with their greed, I've had it with them, their insatiable lust that hurt people. What he gives as the only example of their corruption is how men treat women. The sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any as they wanted as their wives. They just took the women, treated them like property, demeaned them. God says, I won't stand for that. I made men and women equal in every way, equal in every way. You will not use and abuse and treat women like this. God's disgusted with the whole thing. Mankind chooses corruption and destruction reigns. So the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. And so again, in the origin story, there is a flood and God saves Noah and his family and the animals. And there's a great consequence to corruption. The consequence of our corruption, how we mistreat each other, use and abuse each other, is that God's heart is broken. That's the consequence, but there's still a comeback. So as the story goes, 150 days on the water, Noah releases the dove again. This time the dove returns to him in the evening with a fresh olive leaf in its beak. That's that olive leaf, that olive you know, branch that is a sign of peace and restoration, right? Then Noah knew that the flood waters were almost gone. Noah knew there would be a comeback, even after corruption. A comeback from pride, Adam and Eve. A comeback from violence, Cain and Abel. And a comeback from corruption, Noah and the flood. The last origin story is the Tower of Babel. And this is a comeback from power. Humankind once again, pop, once again populates the Near East. And in Babylon, kind of modern-day Iraq, they gather together and say, listen, we need to be great. We need to be powerful. So the elites get together and said, we are going to build a city for ourselves. You see the problem here? This is a human problem. These stories are not talking about those people those times. These stories are talking about all of us. They said, these elites said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches to the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. This is pure quest for power. Humankind chooses power and destruction reigns. But there's still a comeback. God didn't wipe them out. God says, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Let's get them where they need to go. Humankind needs to be dispersed. Power needs to be dispersed. That's the whole story of the Tower of Babel. Power needs to be dispersed. You get the elite together, what are they going to do? They're going to build for themselves, greatness for themselves, and they're going to use and abuse other people to get more power for themselves. 
political parties in America are nothing but the Tower of Babel. The political parties in America are the Tower of Babel. I believe religious institutions in America are the Tower of Babel. You get elites together and you build power for yourself and you control the masses around you by any means necessary. God says power has to be dispersed. And so he forcibly disperses these people. All of this is an act of grace to, to save humankind, to save humankind from pride, to save humankind from violence, to save humankind from corruption, and to save humankind from the quest for power. Those are the four origin stories. And they're powerful, aren't they? And they mean everything for us right now. They mean everything for us right now. Every problem that we're having as Americans every problem of division, every problem of, of, of attacking one another, every problem of tribalism, every political, racial, cultural, religious problem in America boils down to these same four origin stories, a quest for pride, doing violence to each other, corruption, seeking our own greed and wants, and seeking power for ourselves at the expense of others. This is just what we do. It's what we've always done. But God says there's a comeback. There's a comeback in every one of these four stories, and there's a comeback right now, right here today. We are going to come back, I hope and I pray, better than ever. Better than ever, because we need a comeback. Our nation needs a comeback story. Our nation needs a comeback story. We are divided as we have ever been politically, culturally, and racially, uh, as divided as we've been since uh, the 60s. In 60 years, we've never been this divided as a nation. We are at each other's throats. Violence is on the rise. Democracy is being challenged. We're crushing ourselves with debt. We are about to cross $30 trillion in debt. That means every one of you taxpayers owe a quarter million dollars. That's what happens. When you build a tower of Babel, and when you're focused on pride and greed, our nation needs a comeback story real bad, really, really bad. God is a God of comeback. And if we, as God's people, we believe in God, we believe in Jesus, we need to love each other the way Jesus loves us. He gave his life for us. That was the extent of his love. He loved us to the very end. We've got to love others to the very end, not because we agree with them and call that unity, but because we disagree with people. That means we've got to really love them and really serve and really build friendships and really learn from each other and really solve problems together. Our nation needs a comeback. Our church needs a comeback. The Christian movement needs a comeback. The word that's in my head, and I've started writing a little bit about this, is that the Christian church movement needs a reset, a reset, not to toss it all out. There's some great things in there, great things, great traditions even. I'm not talking about canning it. I'm talking about a reset where we look back to the simplicity of I follow Jesus. I learn from Jesus. He's my hero. He's my role model. The church, the Christian movement needs a comeback story, and it will only happen when we learn to love each other the way Jesus loves us. Maybe your family needs a comeback story. Maybe your marriage is a little bit of a mess. You're not quite seeing eye to eye. Maybe you're on the brink. Maybe you're not getting along with your kids very well. You're annoying each other at every step. The arguing never seems to stop. Your marriage can have a comeback story. It can. If there's an inkling of hope there, I'm just going to ask you, reach out to us, info at rancher.tv. Reach out to us. We're here to help. We have many, many men and women here to help with pastoral counseling, even clinical counseling. We have mentors. 
Your family can be saved if there's an inkling of hope. And I'm telling you, this is sad. If there's not an inkling of hope, we can help you rebuild your life. Your family needs a comeback story, perhaps. It's the love of Christ that'll get you there. And finally, you may need a comeback story. You might be deeply hurting. You might be hurting because this constant perpetual stress has done something to your soul. It has been eroded. Maybe the job you're in is incredibly stressed out. I I can't talk to a medical professional without tears streaming down their face because of what they're experiencing every day. Or maybe you've lost your job or your business is is under threat of, of extinction. You need a personal comeback. Maybe you're your thoughts, your mind is going sideways and you're scaring yourself. Maybe your emotions are just filled with darkness and you can't seem to, to feel your way out of that. I'm telling you, you have a comeback story waiting for you. It is the love of God that never leaves you. We see that in the four origin stories of Genesis 1 through 11. Know that right now. God never leaves you. His love is never apart from you. No matter what you have done, no matter what mistakes you have made, he's forgiven you. The cross of Christ proves that and your comeback story is ready to happen. You're going to need some help. We are here to help as a family of faith. Let the four origin stories tell you and your family and this nation there will be a comeback. Let's pray. Our God and Father, these are are powerful concepts out of Genesis 1 through 11, these origin stories, the Hebrew people origin stories that define them as a as a nation, as a people, which is why they keep coming back after history's worst afflictions. The Christian community has also chosen to adopt these stories as our own. And so here we are needing a comeback, a nation that is hurting, really a world that is hurting and afraid, a church that has largely lost its way and divided. The church in America, the Christian movement, needs a reset, needs a comeback. Families needing a comeback individuals needing a comeback. Let these four stories shout to us with confidence. Yes, things are tough. Yes, things are dark. Yes, things are not right and are broken. There will be a comeback. You are the God of comeback. Help us to to submit to you, to learn from you, particularly your son, Jesus. Help us to obsessively look at him to see how he handled adversity, to see how he loved people everywhere, no matter what, even to the point of giving his own life for the cause of mercy and justice and love. Help us to receive that love that was given to us and help us to love other people in return, not because they agree with us, but because they disagree with us and we're gonna treat them like family. That's the path of true unity. That's the path of the comeback. We accept it, help us to live it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.